Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Michael Ely. Mike started real estate investing in 1999. He made crucial mistakes, which led him to losing everything in the early 2000s. Learning from this, Mike has since acquired over 1,000 apartment units. And due to his success, he has recently attracted the attention of some Chinese investors. So how are you doing, then, Mike? Everything's great, Charles. How you been, brother? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And you have a very interesting story and you're involved in a lot of projects. So I think that the listeners are going to get a great value out of our, our chat this morning. And people don't know, uh, give us a little background, professional background on yourself prior to starting in real estate investing. Uh, so I grew up in Cincinnati, attended Tuskegee University, finished up in electrical engineering, I started off doing concerts and parties, and that's kind of how I paid for school. Uh, and then I started buying uh, houses after graduation with no money down, the old Carlton Sheet techniques, right? That's a name you don't hear much often. Yeah, you won't hear it much. And uh, I lost everything. You know, I was making three, 400000 a year, and you know, I had to start all over again. So what happened in the, in the early 2000s? Well, so I started buying real estate while I was working for a job in electric construction. I was a property manager, uh, buying agent. And then I started buying these houses with no money down, but I really didn't have any uh, plans. You know, I was just buying these houses. It was great because, you know, I bought my first two family I put like $2,000 down and then I fixed the upstairs and then rented the upstairs and, and part of my unit and I was living rent free. Mm. Life was great. And then I did it again. So that paid my car payment. And then I kept doing that. Next thing you know, I got about you know 15 to 20 units and then I, I lose my job or I might've got fired. I'm not really sure to this day. I, I, I don't know. But then I started depending on that, and then I had a car wash, and then it all fell apart. And because uh, I didn't have any financial discipline, I didn't put any escrows, I didn't set money aside, you know, I didn't have the business plan. And, uh, and then next thing you know, I lose everything. So it was, it was really not having the, the reserves that kind of, that did it. It was, it, it, how was your financing on it? Was it fixed financing or well, was it very- I did everything, uh, well, far as the houses, I did debt, but far as the car washes, I'd had a land contract rent to own deal. And I got in with minimum uh, money down. And what really did, what really set me back, I didn't know if you know, but nobody ever told me that it rains April and May, and maybe a little bit June every day. <laughs> and so uh, naturally I wasn't generating enough revenue. And then it's kind of that old, hey, we'll take funds here from that old Peter to Paul deal. And you just started falling apart. But if I, I would have had some escrow and reserves, uh, we probably could have made it through, but I'm, I'm happy it didn't because I, I never want to do a car wash again. <laughs> 
What did you, how did you start to rebuild your portfolio? So when you, when you changed your mindset and you actually had a business plan, what did you, what did you do differently and how did you structure the, the rebuilding to where you are now? Well, that was interesting. I had some motivation, you know, not only was I broke, I moved back home with my mom and dad and I was 30 years, 30 years old. So, you know, uh, and they painted my room lavender and pink and they still had my old twin bed, the old, uh, you know, like on the ships where they had that steering rudder, that wheel, you know, that was my headboard. And uh, so, you know, I was pretty sexy at 30 to be living at home. And uh, so that was my motivation to get up every day. But what really happened, I went back, got my real estate license. Uh, that kept me kind of attached to the market and in the game to see what was going on. And then from there, I learned what people wanted to buy and didn't buy. But I wasn't a great realtor at all. Yeah. Probably had like 30 deals that year and only closed on about seven or eight. And what, what year was this? To, let's see, the market... I'll say 2003, 2005, and only made $13,000 that year as a realtor. But like I said, the great thing about it, I found out what people like, what they don't like, and I took those ideas with my previous experience, and I had some college buddies invest with me. But I just took, I found a deal, I marketed it, I renovated it, I leased it, and I resold it. I took management fees and commissions and gave them all the profits. I succeeded twice in a row where they netted like 30,000 plus a deal. I said, I got it. I went on my own. And then I ended up finding an investor that gave me a line of credit for almost 200 grand. Wow. Nice. That's awesome. Then you started, what kind of properties did you start with? Start off with some simple ones, you know. I, I bought some, uh, we got the west side in here. I bought like, you know, multiple houses for like, you know, in that eight to $20,000 range, putting five to 10 in it. Uh, quick turnovers, getting a, a tenant in there, renting it for 650, 750, 800 a month. They became turnkey. And then an investor would come and buy from me, you know, at a 15, $20,000 markup. I would then take those proceeds, take a little bit out to pay my bills for two or three months, which was minimal. And I took that cash and bought another house and paid my investor off. And so then that was the beginning of me owning houses free and clear. You know, okay. just very small ones. Yeah. Makes it much easier with a single family house where you don't have a mortgage and you're not renting oh to any God. person that comes off the street because you you want someone to cover that mortgage, even though you know they're probably not the best tenant to, to put in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was a challenge. Yeah. So, um, one of the deals uh, I was I was looking over that you had done, and um, we were speaking previously about, and it's very interesting because when people ask me about getting involved with real estate, the first thing, and they talk to me about the areas, and the first thing I'll say is avoid D class properties, right? <laughs> Because, I, you know, and you actually made a value add play of one, which was, I mean, so this is very interesting. Tell me, tell me us about what, what, you know, why you got involved with this property, how bad the area was, was it a true like war zone and um, how you were able to, you know, work your business plan. What was your plan through the whole thing? So the one reason I started in D and F, that's all I knew. I only knew those markets. You know, I had other friends that were doing real estate and they would be in these B and A markets. And 
I didn't know that. You, you could tell me whatever you want, and I didn't understand the pricing. In these areas, I knew what people were paying, I knew what we could get for rent, and I knew kind of what we could do to get it rented. And we were providing uh, some quality housing. And when we say quality, you know, we, did, we were putting towel in these low-income houses, which they didn't do that. We put nice towel floors, uh, nice countertops. You know, it just didn't look like your old Section 8 low-income houses. If it was in another uh, another area, people would love to live there. Uh, but one of the war zones I bought was a, a was a twenty eight unit. Literally, they were I could come out and literally they were shooting. Wow. Uh, and but I used multiple strategies. I really didn't know how to lease it, uh, but I used what they called a guerrilla marketing at that time. You know. You know, putting your flyers out, putting in stores, um, going in different areas and just posting up your thing. Because most of those people, they weren't using the Internet at that time. Uh, also, I met some people that were experienced in real estate that leased in this type of area. And they worked with a lot of different agencies because all these agencies help people, uh, whether it's for elderly, for uh, some type of disease or mental abuse. All those people need places and they had subsidies that'll help pay for that. And so I went in, fixed them up, called these agencies and they loved me and they just started throwing me people and they were paying rent. Next thing you know, I got 85, 90% occupancy in these D plus areas because I knew if I, if there wasn't no type of subsidy, there was no way I could be successful. You know, I did the things people did not want to do. That's a lot of work. Yes, it was. Yeah. Anything I, when you have to deal with any of the agencies, I mean, it's just. It was, it was a grind. Uh, there was a lot. There was a way. There was a much easier way to do it. But it's where I got started. I appreciate it because I know how to control my costs. I understood people. I understood their situation so I could relate and become successful. So when I did finally make it to C or B property, I thought I was in heaven. I thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So what happened with the um, with that D-class property that you ended up netting a million dollars off of? How did that, what was the major turning factor there that allowed you to to make that profit? Was it the gentrification in the area? Was it something, I no, mean, keeping up rent? Now, Quite frankly, the reason we made a million now, it was strictly the market. When we first found that property, we found it for about 200, 220,000. That was about 4,000 a door. We knew that if we put about another 4,000 a door, we, we could be all in for about almost 400 and let's say flip it for 600. You know, that was just my feeling. This was before I was really taking any CCIM courses and understanding cash flow and depreciation, you know, internal rate of returns. And so when we did that, we, I, I really looked at it as like, man, you know what, let's just flip it. But one of my partners said, no, man, let's go for it, go after the property. So we fixed it up, we rent it. I called the agency. This actually, as a matter of fact, I had, let's see, I only had eight tenants. It was a 48 unit building. Only had eight tenants. I had another eight units. 
gutted down to the stud, and the rest remaining was vacant. I went to one agency, and with less than 30 days after I, uh, I acquired the property, they took my entire building. Wow. And they guaranteed my rent for a year. So I was off and running. It was, it was my first home run that was not so much an easy run, you know. And we had a lot of issues going into management, but I had a great team. And because of that, we're successful. But one of the things I noticed when we were buying it, I noticed the, the transfer history. I was looking at, I saw what people were paying a million and a million three and a million five. And I just, I couldn't find like who would want to pay that. And do you understand this area you're in? And, but the market was down in 2008. That's when, you know, we had the great crisis, the great recession. Uh, everything was down pennies to the dollar and we just attacked it and we were aggressive. And then we understood cash flow and cap rates. And typically in the area, at least in the Cincinnati area, properties like that would sell at a 10 cap. At the time of the market, it went down to an eight cap. And there you have it. We sold it for, we had, you know, one, 1. 1.5, 1. 1.6. We were all in for 400. We had a concession and netted a million. After six years of holding it? Six years of holding it, yes. Wow. Nice. So speaking about cap rates and how everything changes, obviously, in that situation, uh, how is your company handling the current low cap environment? And, and to listeners, just so they understand, if low cap meaning lower capitalization rate, in other words, just high prices uh, where we are now. No, honestly, I, I think some people would be upset, but I love it. This is great. This is awesome time. For one, with the lower cap rates, that means it's a seller's market and sellers are getting big money for what they sell. So number one, when we're selling, they're selling projects, we're getting top dollar. But one of the great things about this sudden increase um, because of inflation, because of utilities, costs, so therefore the rents have jumped up as well. But what, what the real thing is people, these sellers, you know, they've held on so long for these properties, they just wanted to get realized, but they didn't realize they did not maximize the true rents. Uh, for example, uh, in Cincinnati, for years, we were stagnant in rents. You know, our one bedrooms were written from 400 to 500. But in this last year and a half for C properties, but this last year and a half it's jumped from four to 500 to 650 to 750 for a one bedroom. And for two bedrooms, we we're in that 600, 650. That has now jumped up to almost 923 for a C property. So these people are selling, they don't maximize the rent. They say, well, I can sell at a seven cap or a six cap. I'm saying, great, sell it. They did all the heavy lifting, they renovated it. And then I come in and buy it at their so-called seven cap. But because they didn't realize the rents, I really bought it at a nine or a 10 cap. And all I do is push the rents and then resell it at a six cap. And you made a, anywhere from 300 to a million dollar difference. So really you're completing the value add process to getting it to its full potential where they've left some money on the table and you're picking that up. 
So there you go. And, and yeah. we don't believe in leaving any money on the table. Brother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you have to do now to do a deal. I mean, you can search for deals, but just like when we're looking for deals, I mean, the, the, everything has just gone crazy. I mean, yes. it's just, I, I mean, just when we look through on broker sending us stuff and you're like, that is completely, completely nuts. And it's, uh, you have to really look through hundreds of properties to find something that has something that you can, you can work with. So, um, that's interesting. So another thing you guys are in, you guys are involved with is doing a lot of, uh, hotels as well. In addition to apartments. Now you just closed on a hotel in Columbus, 347 yeah. apartment units as well. Um, how did you find that deal and what are your plans for it? Well, and Charles, just like you were talking about, deals are hard to come by because of the market. They're crazy with it. Fortunately, we have established relationships over a period of time. And I wouldn't necessarily call them my best friends, but these are friends. We hang out and we, we actually did deals together. So when a deal comes, it's kind of like they give me first rights. They put it in front of me. They let me analyze it before it hits the market. And so I'm able to get into that investor ahead of time before it becomes a competitive market or before they send it out to like hotels. Now they do their market completely different. It's kind of they got their pocket investors and they go to, but then after that they go to a conference and they market it out there and they'll sell them just like that. Because we have these relationships, they bring them to us, we get to analyze it, and then we decide to buy. And we got some great undervalue. For example, there was one in Little Reno, it was one of the first deals I was looking at, and they offered to me at 20 million. And at the time, I, I was low on cash and low on investors, and I think it was a $7 million call. And if I would have did that, I'd have been stuck to this deal for the year. So I passed and it went to, uh, to the, the conference and they ended up selling it for $24 million. Wow. So that's, that's kind of the things. But what I plan to do with this hotel, I don't know, we're, we're kind of, it was in a depressed market that came back. My um, initial goal is just to fix it up, renovate it, we'll do what they call a PIP, property enhancement program. Instead of calling it renovating, they call it PIPs. And uh, they, they come up with a complete market plan on how you're going to remarket it and how you're going to redesign it. And then, you know, we want to increase the ADR, which is the average daily rate, which is compared to your monthly rent. And we want to push occupancy by doing a lot of sales in the local area. And hopefully we increase that. Maybe we sell in three years a whole. These 346 units, they're in a great, desirable neighborhood. Uh, we would, I believe personally, but we have partners and investors. I would love to keep it because that's something easy to manage forever. That's, that's something easy, but there was so much value there. I don't know. I, I think I may have to sell for my investors. I mean, it was a deal. We're going to be all in for 24 at minimum. The value should be 32 million. Wow. Uh, but I think we can get to 40, 42 to 45 million in value. I mean, we got one building, they rent it for 900. When we're done, we'll be leasing those out at 1500 a piece. And so, when was the last time they were, when they were updated before you bought it, the units? 
probably early 2000, but let, let's say every time they turn over, right? If it's bad, they update it. It's just... Early 2000s isn't that old though, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. a lot of value just for adding not on. Really, it's just not really up to par. Like, you know, the white cabinets and the granite countertops or the newer windows. So we're going in and do those things. And there's a waiting list for that area. I mean, these are just great areas that really the, 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 the layout doesn't match the area and the income. Wow. Okay. Now, just one thing on the hotel, just uh, from my own knowledge, how does that work where are you bringing in like a nationwide service provider that does, puts their name on it? Is that how that works? Or how do you brand that and market that when you're going through your business plan, the PIP? So for me right now, I'm focused on existing hotels. So they already have a brand and our group, the hospitality group, uh, you know, subsidiary under NASA investments. Uh, we like to focus on the Marriott brands and the Hilton brands. Those are kind of your top brands and kind of, uh, uh, not your full service brands. Uh, we like to do like the Hampton Inn, the courtyards, uh, something equivalent to that. Now, there are the IHG brands, which Intercontinental, like Holiday Inn Express. There's the Choice brands, like Comfort Inn Suites. And those are all good brands. Quite frankly, uh, Choice and IHG, their fees are much cheaper. So even though, let's say we're, let's say the Marriott Courtyard, right? An example has 4 million in revenue, but these Choice and ISG brand has 32, 3.2 million in revenue. So quite frankly though, when it comes to the NOI after debt, you're both making the same amount of money, all right? They both make the same because of the fees, uh, but the biggest difference, and they pretty much cost the same to renovate and build. But the biggest difference is when you go to sell it, one's going to sell at one to one and a half cap rate better than the other. So the, the, the Hiltons and the Marriott versus the Choice and ISG are going to sell at a higher end price versus the other. Interesting. So, so yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So I wanted to talk about since, uh, you know, podcast focuses on international investors and um, you've started to work with Chinese investors and how did that start? I mean, how did it, how did you start working with them? And, um, I, and then I also want to speak about one of your EB5 projects you had going on. Okay. Uh, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think Harvey McKay said it best in his book, Swim with the Sharks. They asked him, do you believe in luck? And he said, yeah, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And uh, I think that was kind of one of those things. I got lucky and I had some God with me. Uh, one of these Chinese investors was looking for some single family houses and they ended up buying a small portfolio from one of my previous partners. Uh, in a low income area and pay full retail price. I was like, oh my gosh, you got to introduce me to them. Like, I, need, <laughs> I got something to sell. And, uh, and so uh, he introduces to me 
And then so we start selling off some of my properties to them. Now already cash flow and stabilizing, but they were in better neighborhoods. And then after a while, you know, became friends, hanging out together, uh, you know, celebrating the Chinese New Year's together and everything. By the way, that threw me off. I don't know if you ever been, you know, America has had me spoiled rotten, you know. I'm thinking we're going to have this uh, standard Chinese food, you know, the fried rice and shrimp with chicken and beef. And then I go to this dinner and they got chicken feet and cow tongue, you know, <laughs> duck tongue. Uh, yeah, I just got back. I was in Hong Kong for three weeks uh, for my fiance's work. And you're walking down the street in Hong Kong and it's just hanging like ducks. And like you can you can buy like there's like you can put your hand in and grab like a crab. Like it's just it's yeah. it's not it's nothing like the United States Chinese no. food where you're having like. <laughs> General, general town, stuff like this. But so that must have been a pretty interesting event too. When you go there and you're like, yeah, I'll just have some more rice, you know? Yeah, oh, and, they, and it gave me a lot. Of, I don't know if you got a chance to taste it. The, the motives, the Chinese white liquor, rice, white rice liquor. Oh, okay. Oh, that, that's awesome, man. Uh, don't drink too much. <laughs> we, we had a lot of red-faced people at that dinner table. Uh but, but yeah, so they, they uh, so we have an established relationship. So now whenever a Chinese investor calls and wants to be in the Cincinnati market and they spend like over a million dollars, they call kind of a, cause we got a small population of Chinese. And then you got another smaller population that deals with real estate and they call about three or four people. And whenever they call one of my friends, they immediately call me. And they said, you got to sit down with Mike. He's got multiple projects and we could put you together. And you mentioned EB-5. Now, although I wasn't a part of this, I, uh, these people, my first Chinese group, they actually were in a failed EB-5 project. It was construction? Uh, it was construction. They were looking to build uh, some apartments and yeah. renovate. And I actually knew, happened to know all the players involved. And it was just a messy situation. They wanted to kind of move on from it, but they still had money left in the U.S. They gave up on the idea of the green card, but they wanted to still invest. So I introduced them to, a, you know, put some, a couple of deals in front of them. We tried a few small ones. You know, three hundred thousand here, four hundred thousand, and within a seven-month period, I flipped their money twice, and then they were comfortable. We like, you know, we 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 were comfortable with each other. Then they ended up giving me the full two million, and I went and bought a hotel and some apartments. Interesting. So, what are what were their goals, and when for that specific? Uh, initial investors that you worked with, what were their goals? And then what was the goals that you've had for other investors, say Chinese investors that have come to you? What are they trying to do? Are they just trying to, is it, um, I mean, obviously make money, but is it, there's more of their goal on preserving capital? Is it just getting into safer assets than where they are in their home country or what, you know? Everybody's a little different. Um, first of all, it depends on what level of investor you have, right? Mm -hmm. So naturally, if you had the EB-5 person, they're more concerned about getting a safe product, 
a, you know, a safe project that they can obtain their green card, right? Then you have some wealthy uh, investors who are like, hey, I just want to be able to own some real estate in the U.S. You know, that's it's kind of like buying Gucci, you know? <laughs> you know, instead of Polo, they got, they got Gucci and Louis Vuitton. Then there's investors truly like, look, I want to grow, sustain wealth. If anything would ever happen over here with all this, the, the way the government is structured, I can always have my cash and, and come to the U.S. And so because of that, some have different expectations. EB-5, they're expecting, you know, kind of that 3 to 5% return. Hmm. Then you have other investors, they're just looking for the standard 8 to 10%. But for me, I do eight to 10% in my sleep. My goal is to get my investor double digit returns, make sure we return their principal and, and give them a piece of equity as long as it's in the bigger projects. And so we like to get them anywhere at minimum 10%, but typically we hit in that 12 to 15%. And then at minimum, we wanna give them, you know, about a. 18% internal rate return, but that generally surpasses 20% plus. Okay. Wow. Before we uh, shift to, to your company, what just finishing up with international investors here, when they come to you, do you, do you see that a lot of them already have their entities set up, their IT, you know, everything all set, ready to go, or are you kind of coaching them through um, the process of getting started before we even start looking at properties? Now, some of the entities, sometimes they do have some. Fortunately, uh, I'm aware of how to set it up, so I will do that for them. Setting up an LLC is not a problem, but sometimes creating that bank account can. Uh, so a lot of times, at least in my experience, the investor already had somebody in the U.S., uh, and so they created a bank account for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's normally how it happens for them. Yeah. If uh, when investors come to you, you know, say a Chinese investor comes to you and they're just, they hear this and they want to start or they're interested in reviewing and researching, what's the first, what are the first few steps uh, an international investor, say from any country outside the United States comes to you and says, you know, what would you tell them to do to get started? Like what's the first couple things you're doing before they even start looking at properties? Okay, I'm about to do a shameless plug. I don't have it. Read my book. No, I, I, <laughs> no, I do have a book coming out. It's kind of, for me, I kind of go through an education process for them. Uh, and on my team, I have, uh, you know, other Asian uh, Chinese friends that are actually partners. And we sit down and have kind of intimate conversations on their goals and what they're looking for and making sure they understand what it is to be a part of the operating agreement and, and obtaining debt or getting a preferred return. And most of them do because they're a little, at least the ones I've been dealing with are a little more sophisticated. Now I do have some, some small investors that are up to capacity. And so those smaller ones, I suggest you just do a, a smaller single family house or two, just to get a feel for everything before you jump into this larger syndication. Okay. Yeah, that's a great way of doing it and get an idea of how everything works. Um, and so, 
Tell us about uh, your company, Nassau Investments. And um, I mean, you guys are involved in apartments, hotels. Um, what else right. do you guys do? What, you know, we have a little about the services that you offer, but. Yeah, so I, we, we got to update that. But now, you know, I, I started off with single family homes and then got into small multi-units. And then I did offer property management services uh, back in 07 when the re recession was there. I was buying mortgage notes at pennies on the dollar. And uh, really, that's where I became stable in the market, like literally for once in my life, I didn't have to worry about hustling to find a new deal to pay the bill. You know, we made enough money and we had enough cash flow coming in that now I can focus on bigger projects. And my goal was to get into multi-units and larger multi-units. And uh, we've been successful through multi-teams and partnerships. And uh, now our, our focus is, is, is strictly hotels and apartments. Just this year, we're already at 40 million in, uh, in deals. And we just got another 500 units thrown at us and another 500 is coming. So I've, honestly, I, I think we'll do 80 million just this year. Wow. It's been an amazing ride um, and I'm enjoying it. And then our hospitality group, I just, I put an amazing team. I find, I've studied the market for five years over a period of time before I jumped in. And I put this amazing team called Hospitality Group. And it incorporates the, the SAT family who, you know, I've worked with for some time, which developed every single one of their hotels over, they have over 16 hotels. They got probably it's about 200 million in assets. And then I bought some operators who are partners as well, Commonwealth, Paul and Brian. They have over 30 years in the business from international to, to, to the Hilton brands. Matter of fact, one of them was responsible going out and developing over 400 hotels wow. across the U.S. And uh, combined together, the hotel group where we own and manage over 1.5 billion in assets. And so we plan on expanding that, you know, a couple of hotels a year. Awesome. So tell us about your book and then also how people can get in touch with you. Okay. So uh, got a book coming out shortly. So we're going to keep you up. It's called uh, I went from broke to a thousand units. And we'll talk about all the great things that happened, how I got there, the, the failures, the successes, and how I gave back. And, and the goal is to actually teach some other people to become wealthy, truly to be millionaires, and to give back and uh, give scholarships to, you know, my goal is to give scholarships to uh, children that have been adopted or wards of the state. I want to give them a full ride. And by training and educating people, uh, this is one of the goals I, I want to accomplish. But to get in touch with me, uh, you can find me at Bigger Pockets or LinkedIn. That's Michael Ely, uh, E A L Y. Or always keep in touch on all the deals. If you're interested in investing, being part of a syndication, or you want to be an active investor or a passive investor, just go to Nassau Invest dot com. That's 
Nassau, N-A-S-S-A-U, invest, I-N-V-E-S-T-S dot com. And you can reach me there and we can dialogue some more, set up some meetings, international. We have interpreters uh, that speak fluent Mandarin and from Shanghai, uh, where I often visit and play soccer, by the way. Uh, (laughs) So you can catch me there. All right. Sounds good. So what I'll do, Michael, I appreciate you being on the call. Um, and then what I'll do is I will put everything together, all the links and the emails and the URLs, everything that you've mentioned, we'll put into the to podcast notes and YouTube notes. And um, it'll be easy for anybody that wants to reach out and learn more about uh, NASA investments to, uh, to do so. Hey, thank you so much, Charles, man. I appreciate the opportunity, brother. I really appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.